0: Well, good evening, beloved. I trust that you are doing well this evening. Uh, If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, hopefully you already know, but we're in Romans chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12. And before you text Elena or message me, yes, the screen is correct, no, we didn't. Misspell the word right. Um, There is an intention behind what we're doing this evening with uh, using this uh, spelling and this intention uh, behind the word. So uh, stick with us and it'll become more apparent as we go. So Romans chapter 4, hopefully you've had enough time to get there. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, and we'll read to verse 12. This is God's word to his people. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision but who also walk in the steps of the faith while our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised and that's God's word and we're thankful that he's preserved it for us let's go ahead and open this evening with a word of prayer father we come to you tonight mindful and aware of the fact that we are undeserving of your grace mercy and love to us and as we consider tonight understanding rightly where faith and religious orders or rites take place we pray that you would help us to understand once again and maybe even for some for the first time the importance of making sure that we understand the faith component of our salvation So be with us now as we journey in your word. Uh, May it correct us and inform us and make us more like you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, everyone wants to feel or to know the feeling of acceptance and entrance into a group. Um, As much as people, even in the midst of a pandemic where they're kind of locked away and, and they're kind of by themselves, like to brag about or maybe just embrace the idea of a social loner or someone who kind of doesn't enjoy groups. Everyone still desires to be accepted. Everybody wants to know that they are in whatever the in is. And today, it is popular to suggest that in religious circles, one merely kind of express their own religious identity through different rites, rituals, and practices. And and kind of the way that we have gone from exclusive in in the sense of practicing religion is to to one that's more open and broad in in order that everyone kind of feels included and accepted and, and welcomed. And while this probably has the best intentions behind it. What it ultimately does is it dilutes the truth of really a lot of different uh, religious understandings. We live in a culture and society that says, do you want a little bit of new age? You can have a little bit of new age along with a little bit of Taoism, maybe a little bit of Buddhism, maybe a little bit of Christianity where you like what Jesus has to say and you kind of mix it all together. And that's the way that you understand religious activity. And for others, it's not necessarily getting the right religious activity. It's just letting people express themselves religiously how they want to. The danger in all of this is that religious activities, religious expressions, Begin to overshadow what it actually means to follow Jesus. And so what ends up happening in Christian circles a lot of times is we begin to emphasize practices and strategies and service habits over what it means to genuinely follow Jesus Christ. So people start to delight in or express their Christianity, what it means to follow Christ uh, through the areas in which they serve, through uh, the the religious uh, rites that they observe, whether that be baptism, the Lord's Supper. And I know that many might be confused in our terminology of rites, uh, R-I-T-E-S, rites. What we're saying here is it becomes possible. And not even necessarily possible. It becomes probable, left to the human heart, to exalt things above Christ as being the way that we express ourselves religiously. And the Apostle Paul in this particular text wants to make sure that the Jewish listener is understanding of the implications of what it means for Abraham to believe in God by faith and righteousness accounted to him. Paul is slowing down here in chapter four to make sure that the reader, the listener to his letter understands unequivocally what it means to follow Christ rightly. And so tonight, in order to kind of put all of these things in perspective, we're going to look at religious rights, R-I-T-E-S, and make sure that we understand them in their proper order, in their proper purpose, and their proper scope. And that's kind of kind of be the the chart, if you will, for how we walk through this uh, particular passage. And so tonight we're going to start first with making sure we understand the right order. So look again at verses nine and ten. Does this blessedness? Referring to Abraham's salvation. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the um, uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Notice how the Apostle Paul continues his argument. Paul wonders aloud For his readers and listeners, remember, first century letters arrive on the scene. They wouldn't be available in mass copy. You didn't go into the the church um, office and Xerox off Paul's letter to the Romans. This letter would have been read aloud to to the congregation gathered there. And so Paul wants his listeners and now, by extension, readers to to, uh, see the purpose of circumcision as a religious rite. Uh, versus Abraham's justification. It's here that Paul emphasizes that Abraham's justification precedes the religious ceremony. Look at verse 10. How then was it accounted? How was Abraham's righteousness accounted? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? And Paul answers this hypothetical question, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Paul, again and again, and we could probably say again, wants to emphasize and remind the readers that the religious rites and practices are not what ultimately justify Abraham, but rather faith is the justifying element, which leads Abraham to follow God and uh, um, obey his command to be circumcised. That's what is happening here. And, and Paul it, it understands there's going to be questions. That's why he starts verse nine by asking, is salvation available to circumcised and uncircumcised people? What do we do with Abraham? Abraham circumcised. He's a Jew. He's a patriarch. He's a, a model for what it looks like to believe and trust in God. So is what has happened with Abraham available to people who are not Jewish? And and Paul says, look, you have to understand the circumcision, the sign of being part of God's covenant people was done post conversion. Abraham believed God by faith. And it's not until later. If we go and pull apart the Old Testament and we chart out the timeline of Abraham, Abraham believes in God and is accounted to him for righteousness, and then as God instructs him, as he follows him, to be circumcised, to take this sign, then Abraham follows the Lord in obedience. It's a good reminder to us all this evening that religious orders, religious ideas, such as, but not limited to, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and and, and even following... in church membership and serving inside of a local church are all things that happen as a result of conversion, not as something that gives evidence or um, allows for one to be justified. We could say it this way, genuine regeneration, genuine salvation that happens by faith alone in Christ alone produces in the heart of people, a desire To follow the Lord in obedience, which means church membership and baptism. Baptism first, which then leads into being a church member. Serving the Lord faithfully, taking the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what Christ has done are all result-oriented of conversion, not the means by which one is converted. Romans chapter 3 and 4 are where Protestants and Catholics continually collide because our understandings of justification is completely different. We are justified by faith alone, and it produces works. We are not justified by faith in Christ plus our works. There's a major difference that is taking place here. And Christians need to understand the difference. And Paul highlights the difference, which ultimately leads me to ask you this question this evening. I'm going to ask it week after week, because I think that potentially it might be some of you watching this and listening to this that have never been justified by faith. And you're continuing even now trying to figure out what is it gonna look like for me to save myself, to be justified by my works, Am I going to have to take on extra ministry responsibilities when this, uh, when the the orders for us to stay home are lifted and I can get back into church? Maybe I'll do more activity. Maybe you're trying to do it even right now. The the during these weeks, you're reading the Bible more because you believe that by doing that somehow God's grace is merited to your account, or you're just trying to be a good moral person. Friend, please understand. God's word is incredibly clear. You cannot. Work your way, religiously or otherwise, into the kingdom of heaven. It is only by faith in Christ alone. As you repent of your sins and believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that you can be justified. So, we see first and foremost that we have to have the right order. But secondly, what we see in our understanding of these and religious activities, is there is a purpose. So we need to understand the right purpose. Look at verse 11, and we're just going to read the first part of it. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Notice that Paul points to circumcision as a sign. It's supposed to highlight something, when Abraham was circumcised, it it highlights Abraham's obedience and identifying himself as a part of the people of God. This identification separated Abraham. It, it, It led to him being out of the world around him. Not in the fact that He was was suddenly just pulled out of the world and and lived by himself away from everyone. But it was a marker, an identifying marker that there was something inherently different about Abraham. He was willing to take this sign on as a, a means by which he would show his obedience to following God's commands and God's instruction. Circumcision was never intended to be A way of being saved. It was never intended as a means by which someone would come to to saving faith. Merely being circumcised was never enough in the Old Testament to be saved. This is why there's so much confusion today. You'll you'll hear people say, well, Old Testament saints were saved differently than New Testament saints were. And look at the the religious practices. They're, They're different in the Old Testament than they are in the New Testament. Yes, but in the Old Testament, never once did God say, by being circumcised, you're giving evidence of your conversion. Rather, faith was what was necessary. Faith in God was necessary. Faith in Christ, the promised Messiah, was necessary in the Old Testament. And circumcision never served to save anyone but rather was an identifying marker. We can make a modern parallel at this point and say baptism functionally points to the same thing. It's an identifying marker. When one is baptized, they are identifying with uh, and after following Jesus Christ. No one is saved through the means and mode of baptism. Uh, We were talking uh, the other night, I think it was Monday night on our Zoom call about baptism, and I, I referenced this idea. There is so much wrong thinking in regards to baptism, and it happens all the time. We were playing uh, this past weekend, uh, my brother in law, my sister, and Jess and I were playing uh, knowledge is power together. And, and a question came up, because obviously I'm going to take us down uh, the religion pathway in that game to try and be uh, more successful than everyone else. And the question was posed this way. What is the Christian or what is the, the right that Christians observe that cleanses from sin and enters one into church membership? And the answer was Baptism. And I remember sitting there thinking, as we all in the room got it right, that the question posed is ultimately wrong. Because Christians, Orthodox Christians, do not believe that baptism cleanses one from sin, but rather is an identifying marker. Specifically, Baptists believe this the the strongest, that baptism is an outward sign of an inward change, and in it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the person who is being baptized is identifying with Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're relying on your baptism to save you, it cannot save you. It is not sufficient to save you. Just like circumcision was never sufficient in the Old Testament to save someone, baptism as a New Testament uh, ordinance is, is never viewed as being salvific. And those who view salvation as being, baptism as part of your salvation, are in grave theological error. Because remember, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians that if anyone adds to or takes away from the gospel message, they are to be anathema, they are to be accursed. We don't take that lightly. And so to, to those who may be watching and, and believe that baptism somehow merits salvation, beloved, I would just implore you to read the, the biblical text and to consider the truth contained therein, that no one is saved as a result of their baptism. And, and that's why we've said the right purpose because the purpose of the rite or the purpose of the religious activity or the purpose of the ordinance is to functionally point to a change that has taken place in someone's life, not to the fact that they believe that that rite or practice or ordinance saves them. Too many Christians also view their activities as salvific. They, they, they view their activities in the church as being saving or benefiting some religious way. So you may from time to time run into a Christian who believes that their service in in the local church contributes somehow to their salvation. And and they may never actually use that word, but in the way that they act, the way that they live functionally, the way that they view serving in the local church, they're trying to earn God's grace by serving. And then there are other people who add legalistic tendencies and components as a means To understand. And so instead of thinking about in terms of circumcision or baptism, they uh, create holy wars around preferences and suggest that unless you follow in this way, you are not a genuine Christian. The Apostle Paul points in this particular text to the idea that circumcision is a sign merely and sufficiently to encourage the Jewish listener and all other listeners included to recognize the right purpose and the proper purpose that circumcision place plays in the life of a believer. So uh, the the question I would ask at this point as you're considering man how do I apply this to my life? Well Christian, where are you looking for your ultimate justification? You've got to ask yourself that regularly. And then the second component part is, are the works that I do for Christ motivated by a love for him or out of a desire to somehow earn God's grace, mercy and justification? And it's easy sometimes for those lines to become blurred. And we've got to pull ourselves back and say, in what way am I functionally understanding the, the righteousness of God being imputed to my account? Am I serving? Am I living for Christ as a result, motivated by what he's done, or as a means by earning something? So, so that kind of takes us through the, the purpose of the rights. It also takes us through uh, the ordering of the rights. And then, then finally tonight, and, and even probably more importantly, as we kind of draw this to a conclusion, we need to understand the scope of the right. And this is where we kind of peel away from religious rites and understand justification by faith and who it's offered to. Let's pick back up in verse 11. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also." And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. They may read that through and say, man, the different ways in which the apostle Paul can use the word circumcision and uncircumcision is amazing. But the point of what Paul is driving here is to understand that the reason why justification uh, by faith, righteousness being imputed to Abraham's account happened prior to his circumcision was so that Abraham could be the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And you're like, what do you mean the father? It means that he is the patriarch. This is God's way of extending and expanding and, and showing that the scope of justification by faith is, is available and possible to all people. Once again, Paul is reminding them that the justification that happens by faith alone in Christ alone is available to both the Jew and the Greek. There is no difference in its offer to both. It extends freely to all people. And this is the genesis of Abraham's great claim to fame and, and, and why he can be the father, both of the circumcised and uncircumcised, because... His justification preceded any religious orders and, and rights. So the scope is not, and remember, this is going to be a big argument in the in the book of Acts. We're reminded that this happens in Galatians. Paul reminds us a, a, again of the, the great debate over whether or not new believers must be circumcised post-conversion. And Paul argues ardently and forcefully that no, this is not a requirement which is a good reminder to us that we we obey and we follow God's word, but the requirement for people to look like us, sound like us, talk like us, be like us culturally and our preferences is not a requirement of gospel practice. The scope of the gospel allows for people of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds and ethnicities and racial makeup and Uh, socioeconomic following can all worship and celebrate the same God because the gospel offer goes to all of them. It goes to all of you tonight as well. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you don't have to become someone in order to be a Christ follower. And even furthermore, it's not like, well, once you've been justified by faith in Christ alone, then you've got to start looking like us. That's the beauty of Christianity is that it's not restricted to one creed or following or people group, but to all people. This is the beauty of the gospel is that it breaks down those barriers. It goes into places and and tears them down. If you were to come to our church on a normal gathering, you would see people of all different stripes worshiping the Lord together because the gospel breaks down those barriers the CEO can sit next to the ex-con, the, the poor with the rich, the, the, the socioeconomic status holder, the one who has much influence in the city worships along the one who has no influence in the city because the gospel tears down those barriers. And Christians need to be people who are tearing those barriers down all the time, saying, you are welcome here to worship with us. You don't have to look like us. You don't have to dress like us. You don't have to do anything like us other than what the Bible prescribes. Now, we do gather around what God's word says because it is the rule of faith and practice for us. So we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We're never going to waver on that. We believe that the Bible it says that the, the next right step in following the Lord, after you've trusted in him, you've repented of your sins, you believed in Christ, is to, to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. We believe that following that uh, conversion and, and baptism, you become a member and you, you serve faithfully and you give to the Lord's work. All of those things are inscribed. Uh, um, inscribed in God's Word to us, and then you're progressively sanctified. That means we, we got to be changed in this image, and everybody's on a, a different pathway of that sanctification. We're, we're going through the book of 1 John on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and it is a good reminder that John writes to, to those believers there, and he addresses them in three groups, the mature, the newly converted, and then the people who are somewhere in between. And, and Every church has people like that and they should embrace the fact that we're all growing together and no one is perfect, but by God's grace, we are being molded and shaped into his image. So that means that our religious preferences ultimately need to be um, seen for what they are and their importance, but never diminishing the scope of the gospel offer to people based on something about who they are, other than being made in the image of God, worthy of, uh, and they have worth, dignity, value, and purpose. And as such, we proclaim the gospel to them and trust that they will hear the gospel message, believe, repent, and be saved. So I would ask you tonight, How are you practically sharing the scope of the gospel daily? I used to ask a a lot of times when I would think through application questions at this point, I would ask uh, people, are there people that you view as being unworthy of the gospel? And the, the answer, I think, oftentimes comes back, no, there's no one that I view as being unworthy of the gospel message. But I think when you get to the practical reality of who you share the gospel with, that question is answered more fully. If there are people who you will not share the gospel with, those are the people who you feel and believe are not worthy of the gospel, are not worthy of God's saving grace, and that is the opposite of what God's word has to say to us. So as we understand, and we look to to Romans, we, we need to understand how these rites fit into our religious practice, but ultimately... Resting in the fact, and this is Paul's ultimate point through the whole book of Romans and ultimately is great point in Romans chapter four. The only way that anyone can be made right with God is that they are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That is the only way that you can be made right. And if you have not done that, you can do that right now. You can trust in Christ. You can repent of your sins is to express sorrow and to turn from them believe in Jesus Christ and confess or call out to him as being Lord and committing to follow him you can do that right now so as we wrap up our time together I would just implore you to make sure that you are right with God And you're not relying on any sort of religious activity to make you right, but relying on Christ alone to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we're thankful once again for the opportunity we've had now to think through and consider your word. And we pray that it would take root and that we would ultimately um, grow and change as a result of it. Be with those that maybe have heard this message for the first time or who do not genuinely know you yet, that they would place their faith and trust in you and in you alone. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.